Open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 4. It's been a long time we've been in Deuteronomy chapter 4. This morning we are going to cover verses 32 to 40. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. I thought I would get through it this week, but next week we'll finish. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. 32 to 40. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after him and brought you out of the land of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So if you've been tracking through Deuteronomy with us, you'll notice that there are a few themes that are repeated over and over and over again. Because the Lord really wants us to know these themes. He really wants us to know these things. And so as we move through this book, verse by verse by verse by verse, <coughs> we will reiterate and repeat those things that the Lord repeats over and over and over and over again. So far, throughout Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord has called the Israelites, who are at this moment standing on the shores of the Jordan and ready to enter Canaan to conquer it and take possession of it, to lay hold of the promises made by the Lord to their fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. The Lord has repeatedly commanded this people at this time, before they head over to Canaan, 
Two, as chapter 4, verse 1 tells us of Deuteronomy, listen to the statutes and the rules and do them. You see it again in chapter 4, verse 3. Not, do not add to the word that the Lord commanded them, nor take from it that you may keep the commandment of the Lord. Again, in chapter 4, verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. And again, in chapter 4, verse 9, take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes had seen, have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And again, in chapter 4, verse 14, do them in the land that you are going over to possess. 4.15, watch yourselves very carefully to beware in chapters in 4.16 and 4.19 and in 4.23 to take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God. That is nine times so far in this one chapter the Lord has commanded this people to take seriously the covenant that he has entered into with them. Now what is a covenant? A covenant here is an agreement between two parties. God has taken this people to himself and he has made an agreement with them. Here is, I have loved you and I have proven my love for you. I have shown you my love. Here is my commandments now. You become my people. And should you do the the commandments, listen to them and keep them, I will bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. You will have peace. You will have prosperity. You will have long life in the land. So the Lord has bound himself to fulfilling these promises to this people should they obey his covenant. But should they disobey, then there are curses attached to this agreement. Should you disobey, instead of blessings, there will be curses that fall upon you. And as we work through the book of Deuteronomy, these curses will be made clear as we go forward. And why is it that the Lord called upon this people, Israel, at this moment to live for him and for him alone? It's because the Lord had proven his love for them. He had proven to them that he had their best interests at heart. In chapter 4, verse 20, we realize or we read that it was the Lord who had taken them and brought them out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. And because the Lord is, as 4.24 tells us, a consuming fire, a jealous God. And because, as we read last week in 4.31, the Lord is a merciful God. He will not leave them or destroy them or forget the covenant with their fathers that he swore to them. In other words, the Lord, who is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous, the Lord who is merciful and compassionate, the Lord who is a consuming fire and a jealous God, the Lord, this Lord rescued them and delivered them from Egypt and he called them to himself to be his ambassadors, to be his royal nation, to be his kingdom of priests, to be his light to the world. And to add even more fuel to what ought to already have been a blazing inferno of commitment to the God of Israel, Moses now calls on the Israelites at the Jordan to consider the great lengths that the Lord has already gone to for this people. To remember who he is and what he has already done for them. 
to remember how much he has already blessed them in so many ways. That he would, if they take care to obey him, bless them immensely. And so he opens our text this morning by calling on them to consider global history, to consider the world's history, saying in verse 32, Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Meaning, oh, Israel, investigate, inquire, interrogate history. All the days that have preceded you from the day that God created Adam on the earth, from that very day when the Lord formed him from the dust and breathed life into him, you ask if from that day to this, The great things that you have seen, O Israel. The great things that you have witnessed, O Israel. If any of them have ever been done before in earth's history. Have such things ever even been heard of at any point or in any place on earth? And not on earth only, but have they ever been heard of from one end of heaven to the other? See, the things that the Lord has done for you, O Israel, these are not common occurrences in the world. In fact, this is the very first time in human history that such things have come to pass, and they've come to pass for you. Moses had already asked them earlier in Deuteronomy 4, verses 7 to 8. He said to them, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you? The implied answer to both of those questions is there are no nations that have such blessings. Nor have there been any up to that point in human history. The Lord, for his own good purposes, singled out this people. Israel, to instruct them, to reveal to them his character, his power, his attributes, his uniqueness, his perfection, and his love. Did he do it because Israel was the greatest of nations? No. As we'll learn in Deuteronomy, they were the fewest. Did he do it because they were some powerful nation? No. When he did it, they were a nation of slaves. The Lord did this because the Lord is good. The Lord is wonderful. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is powerful. He did all of this so that Israel, of all the peoples in the world, would know with absolute certainty and with absolute clarity that this God is God and there is no other. And that this God, the God who exists, the living God, does not tolerate any rivals. He does not tolerate split allegiances. He does not tolerate divided loyalties. Because he is the one true 
God, the only living God. And as such, he deserves all the praise from all the peoples, all the honor, all the glory from every single last human being on the earth. But even more so from those to whom he has so clearly revealed his glory and conveyed his name. While the vast majority of Israelites seemingly over the years would actually rebel against the Lord, there were throughout the years men like King David, who is described in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. And why is it? Why is it that David could be described like this? Well, listen to it from David's own mouth. In 2 Samuel 7, David is praising the Lord and he says, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before you people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Now, here is a man who understood what Moses is saying in Exodus or Deuteronomy 4.32. Here is a man who knows that you could ask of every day in past history, that you could go up into the heavens and go from one end of it to the other, asking if any such thing has ever taken place. If such a thing as the deliverance of God to Israel at that point and Israel's relationship to God at that point had ever happened or was ever heard of anywhere else, he knew that the answer would be absolutely not. Now, as we look at Deuteronomy 4, we see that phrase, great thing. What is this great thing that the Lord has done for this people that had never been heard of before? Well, we read first in verse 33. The first thing is this. Moses asks, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? You, Israel, heard the voice of the Lord. You heard the voice of the Lord. Has the Lord done anything like this for any other peoples? No. Has any God, so-called God, of any peoples anywhere on earth actually spoken to those who serve them like the Lord spoke to you? The answer to that question is no. Because one of the major themes, as we're going to continue speaking about this morning, one of the major themes in the book of Deuteronomy is they can't speak because they don't exist. There is no other God. Deuteronomy 4.28 tells us all they are is wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. All the so-called gods of all the peoples who are not this God, the living God, the one true God, can be summed up by the lack of response described in 1 Kings 18. As the prophets of Baal 
cried out in 1828, cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They were doing this to get their gods to answer them. And as they, as 1826 tells us, as they called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! What did these prophets hear? 1 Kings 18.29 tells us, they heard nothing. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And why is that? Because Baal, like all the gods of the peoples, does not exist. There is only one God. And there is none besides him. There is none other than him. And this God, the living God, the one true God, it is he who spoke to the nation of Israel out of the midst of the fire at Mount Sinai. This God spoke to this people in words they could understand. Words they could comprehend. In Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, in Exodus 19:9, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So Moses was then commanded to tell the people, the Lord is approaching. He will descend on the mountain. Therefore, prepare yourselves. Get ready for this meeting or encounter with the God of Israel who is going to appear. He says, you must consecrate yourself and be ready on the third day. It took three days of preparation to make ready for the approach of the Lord. We read this in Exodus 19, 16. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In Exodus 19, 14. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, we read, And God spoke all these words, and the words in question were the Ten Commandments. And as the people heard these words, their response is noted in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20. They saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Now, I want you for a second here to, to try and visualize this sight, this moment, a mountain symbolic of permanence and immovability. A mountain begins to tremble and shake. A mountain is wrapped in smoke and the Lord descends upon it in fire. Visualize that for a second. It's almost impossible to do. And now try to 
hear the sound of the heavenly trumpet as it is blazing this whole time, growing louder and louder and louder by the second. And listen, this was not the sound of a trumpet like we know the sound of a trumpet. But this is a trumpet sound that is more impressive and more fear-inducing than thousands, than tens of thousands of trumpets that accompanied the most fearsome armies into battle in the ancient days. Now, over the last few weeks, I don't know why, but my YouTube feed has been dominated by the sounds of ancient battle horns. How that happened, I have no idea, but it happened. And I'll just tell you, they're terrifying. The idea of hearing an army of tens of thousands of people approaching your city, all blowing these horns, would be a terrifying thing. There's two that caught my ear. It was one, the ancient Celtic horn. It's called the Carnix. You can find it online. I heard one Carnix being blown, and I tried to imagine what it must be like to hear 10,000 of them approaching you as these men are ready to wage war on your city. Like, just hearing one would make you melt in fear. Imagine 10,000 as they move closer and closer and closer. See, ancient warfare had a lot of sound to it that we don't truly appreciate. The ancient Aztecs as well, they had something called the Aztec death whistle. That sounds pleasant. And as they went into battle, hundreds and thousands of these fighters would blow these whistles, each of which sounded like, this is how one researcher describes it, the scream of a thousand corpses. There are more, but I think you get the picture, right? These trumpets, these whistle sounds, they struck fear and terror into the hearts of those who heard them. But a thousand carnixes and ten thousand death whistles could not begin to compare with the trumpet sound that was on this mountain or coming from the Lord on this day at Mount Sinai. And then on top of that, As you see all of this, as you hear the trumpets, the Lord speaks. Is it any wonder then that the nation of Israel trembled in fear and backed away from the mountain and stood terrified and panicked far off, alarmed by the specter of what they were seeing, alarmed by the possibility of their death as a result of this communication they were experiencing with the living God? See, we can read these texts, right? We can read them in our daily Bible readings. We can kind of pass over them. But to really dwell on the sights, to dwell on the sounds, the sheer terror of seeing the Lord descend in fire on a mountain, the entire mountain shaking and wrapped in smoke, the sound of the trumpet increasing in volume, a sound more fearsome than that of all the armies of the earth blowing every horn they have. It's, can you imagine it? And Moses here reminds them as they're about to enter Canaan of that moment, saying, you didn't die. 
You heard all of this. You saw all of this. The Lord spoke to you, and you didn't die. You heard the voice of the Lord speaking out of the midst of the fire, and you're still alive. Why? Because the Lord your God has chosen you to be his people, and the Lord your God is a merciful God. He spoke to you. He spoke the commandments to you as a grace to you so that you would not sin, and in not sinning, you would enjoy the blessings of the covenant that he has entered into with you. Israel spoke to them at Sinai, and as we move into the future, into what is our past, the Lord has now spoken to all mankind in an even greater way. Sinai was unbelievable, and all of us would be terrified at the sight. But the author of Hebrews now tells us that yes, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the word of God that he speaks to us. And in John 1, John 1, 14, we read that the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So whereas for Israel, God's revelation of himself at Sinai was one of fear and trembling, one that terrified the people to, a, to the degree that they could only stand afar off, or as he, the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 12, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. No, you, in verse 22, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The Lord now speaks to us through and by Jesus Christ. He is the Lord God come to us in the flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by Him. He is full of grace and truth. He perfectly presents the Father to us. If you have seen Christ, if you are in relationship with Christ, you have seen the Father, you are in relationship with the Father because they are so perfectly unified in their nature, in their will, and in their purpose. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and in him all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And through him, you and I no longer approach burning mountains only to cower in the fear of the voice that speaks from that mountain. But now, as the New Testament tells us, because Christ has reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross, you who were once alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you can now be reconciled to God by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And should you turn to Christ in faith, if you have turned to Christ in faith, then the day is coming when you will be presented to the Father by your Savior, Jesus Christ, as one who is blameless and above reproach. So for you, Christian, for you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to hear the words from the mouth of your Savior in Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But for Israel in the wilderness, this good news, this gospel, this incarnation of Christ lay long in the future. But the Lord who loved them revealed in awesome ways his love and care for them. He did so by speaking to them out of the midst of the fire at Sinai, and also, as Moses continues in verse 34, by delivering them from the enslaving grip of Egypt. That's what we read in verse 34. Look at it. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Has any God ever attempted such a feat? The answer again is no And that for a few reasons, by way of repetition, first, is because none of those gods actually exist, and so they cannot do anything for those who serve them. And a couple of more reasons have to do with the belief systems of the day. Even if the gods they serve did exist in some way, these gods, for the most part, did not consider the people who served them as worthy and valuable. The people who served the gods of the nations, those gods in their literature considered the people more of a nuisance than anything else. Or as an indentured servant whose sole purpose for existing was to perform the menial tasks that their gods were too lazy or disinclined to do themselves. And their gods were limited in their power. In the ancient Near East, the way they believed that the gods operated were that they were bound and powerful only in certain geographical regions. So Baal was the god, so-called god, of Canaan. And the people believed that he was powerful in the region of Canaan. But when you exit Canaan, there is a different god who rules and reigns over that particular region. Each so-called God was sort of like its nation with a nation with its own defined borders, and they operated within those borders with unchallenged power, but had to sit, but had no say outside of those borders. So, have you ever seen, O Israel, a God 
enter into the borders of another god, defeat those gods, and save the people out from that nation? The answer is, no, you have not. But the Lord, the living God, the God of Israel, in contrast to all of those non-existent gods who, who, who are powerful maybe in their own regions, the living God, by contrast, is the God of everything. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the God who rules over all of creation. He is the God who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He is the God who laughs when the nations gather and conspire against him and seek to throw off his dominion. Because in the end, the Lord has already told all these nations, you will all kiss the ring of the sun as you bow before him in terror and confess that he, that Christ, is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This God, the God who actually exists, does not consider you, his people, nuisances. Amen. You are not a nuisance to your God. He doesn't sit around calling you to wave large feathers to cool him down and feed him big clusters of grapes as he sits in his royal seat. The Lord who exists, the one true God, doesn't need anything from you, doesn't need anything from me, doesn't need anything from anything anywhere in creation. But instead, unlike the gods of the peoples, our God, the God who is real, He gives to creation. He gives life and breath and everything. The God who exists has for Israel rolled up His sleeves and gotten to work for His people, delivering them from their oppressive and brutal enslavement to Egypt. See, this people could not deliver themselves Another, more powerful one, needed to step in and do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. And the Lord, for this people, did just that. He did something special. He did something unheard of in human history. He intervened for this nation, and He rescued them. No so-called God had ever done such a thing, nor would they want to. And so Moses asks, has a God ever done for any other nation what the living God has done for you, O Israel? And the answer is no. You see, these false non-existent gods, they would rule over this region, and when the people that served them were defeated by another more powerful nation, that so-called God would just say, well, now we got a new people in here. See you later, old people. Now contrast that with the Lord. The Lord rescued the slaves. The Lord loved his outcasts. The Lord fought for the downtrodden. You see, the Lord is unlike any of the idols of the nations. And so, Scripture is correct when, the, when it says, the gods of the people are worthless idols who don't care about those who serve them. But the one true God who does exist loves his people so much that he rolls up his sleeves and gets to work for them. God is a good and merciful God, 
And he said to Israel, I will not forget you. I will not leave you. I will not forget the covenant that I have made with your fathers. I am the God who is incomparably and all-surpassingly compassionate towards you. And for that reason, the Lord plucked them from the grasp of another nation. And not just any nation. Egypt, who at the time was the most powerful nation in the world. And he did this, said Moses, by trials, meaning judgments in the forms of plagues upon Egypt. He did this by signs, meaning miraculous and supernatural events. He did this by wonders, meaning amazing events that deviate from the normal course or rules of nature. He did this for you, O Israel, by war, meaning armed conflict, but not in the sense that he told Israel to strap on swords and go in and fight. No, they never raised a single sword when they left Egypt. The Lord fought the entire battle and he killed every single Egyptian warrior in the Red Sea. We read this in Exodus 14. There we read, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. And the Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen." Second half of verse 27 says, The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All the host of Pharaoh that had followed them in the sea, not one of them remained. And in verse 30, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see what the Lord did for this people. He did all of this by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That phrase means by his power and his strength. He also enacted great deeds of terror, things that struck fear into the hearts of the Egyptians, bringing thick darkness upon the land and striking down the firstborn throughout the nation of Egypt. And the Lord, as we read in verse 34 of Deuteronomy 4, the Lord did all of this for you, Israel. He did all of it before their eyes. And so the question now is, has any God ever attempted to do anything like that ever? Ask from one end of the earth to the other. Go up into the heavens and ask from one end of the heavens to the other whether such a thing had been done. Up to that day, it had not. For us today, Israel's deliverance from Egypt is a picture. It's a pointer to the Lord's willingness to save a people for himself from the most powerful and dominating of slave masters. The worst of which is, according to Scripture, the slave master that is sin. And the wages that sin doles out, eternal death. 
Scripture tells us that the Lord sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In other words, Christ came to earth to fulfill the entirety of the law right down to the smallest point and then went to the cross in order to die a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying death that pays the full penalty for the sins of all who trust in the name of Jesus Christ. The perfect life, the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, is for us the even greater display of God's mighty hand and outstretched arm reaching down to deliver slaves who cannot deliver themselves. Jesus purchased us who believe in him out from the slave market of sin and has brought us into the family of God. And this is how the Lord has always worked. He doesn't sit passively and watch the train of humanity chug to an eternal hell, but he does what is necessary to alleviate the situation for everyone who would turn to him in faith and repentance. And if you would be delivered from enslavement to sin... If you would pass from eternal death to eternal life in the kingdom of the merciful and gracious God, then you must believe in the name of Jesus. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So the question of Moses still sounds, it resounds for us today. Think about what Christ has accomplished and then ask, has such a great thing as this ever happened? Other than what Jesus has done for us, the answer is no. Was it ever heard of that somebody would come and die for sinners? No, it has never been heard of, only in Christ. And he didn't come to save wonderful, worthy people, no matter what your culture is telling you at this particular moment. You're not great. You are sinners. You are wretches, enslaved to sin and unable to save yourself, unable to please God in any way, shape, or form. And listen, people don't die to save miserable scoundrels. People don't die to save good-for-nothing delinquents as all of us once were. But our gracious and merciful God, now go and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether anyone has ever done this. Our gracious and merciful God has indeed done that very thing. He has died for you, delinquent. He has died for you, wretch. He has died for you, scoundrel. To save you, unworthy miscreant, by his gracious and almighty hand. Ask if such a thing so great as this has ever been done by anyone else and the answer will come back, no, only Jesus. See, there is, and why did, Mo, now back to Israel, why did the Lord reveal such things to the people of Israel that many years ago? Moses tells us in verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides Him. So this is a fundamental lesson that we will be repeating throughout the book of Deuteronomy. 
The Lord displayed all of this to teach Israel, to teach us a fundamental lesson that all of humanity would do well to learn. Verse 35, the Lord is God, there is no other besides Him. It says that twice in this passage. There's only one true God who decrees and ordains the destinies of men and the destinies of nations. There is only one God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. There is only one God who is worthy of praise and worship. There is only one sovereign, supernatural God who created and rules over all things. And that God is the very God who delivered ancient Israel from enslavement in Egypt. That God is the very God who took on flesh, made His dwelling among us, and saves everyone who believes in the name of Christ. There is no other all that claim to be gods, all that the peoples claim to be their deities, all that the peoples look to as lords who are not the living God, who are not the Lord Jesus Christ, are worthless idols, no gods, lacking any true, real existence. And I've said it before, we'll say it again. All the Buddhas are nothing but deceived men. Allah is a fictional character in a fictional book written by a deceived man. The Hindu gods, the Greek gods, the Norse gods, the Roman gods, the Shinto gods, every tribal god throughout the world, every one of them is a counterfeit, a satanic deception, a pseudo-god, a sham, bogus, fake, imposters set up by the enemy to divert worship from the one true God into the realm of frauds and delusions. Is that clear enough? They deserve no respect, no nods of esteem, no approval, but instead are to be exposed as and for the darkness that they are. And should you doubt that this is a common biblical theme, the scriptures are clear about this. Just drop your eyes down to verse 39. The Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Look at Deuteronomy 5.7. The very first of the commandments, which we'll get to soon. You shall have no other gods before or beside me. Deuteronomy 32, 39, I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. And the Lord declares this very truth numerous times by his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 43, the Lord says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. And again, Isaiah 44, verse 6 to 8, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Who's like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare it and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And again, even for the nations that worship other so-called gods, the Lord oversees them too. In Isaiah chapter 45, we read this. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you, that you there is Cyrus, the king of the Persians, a nation that it does not serve the Lord. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. 
I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isaiah 45, 18, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. And in the Gospels, when the scribe approaches Jesus and asks him the all-important question in Mark 12, 28, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered by saying in 12, 29, the most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now I want you to note what the scribe hears as Jesus said this. Look at 12, verse 32. Note what he understands by the phrase. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. The Lord let Israel hear his voice from the mountain and live. The Lord, with mighty hand and outstretched arm, delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt so that they and we, so that all the earth might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. This is a lesson that the world seems slow to appreciate, a lesson that the world seems too dull to believe or is at, the, at this time actively engaged in suppressing in order to worship self, to give in to lusts and passions, to give in to desires of the flesh. And it's for this reason that all the pseudo-gods continue on in our day. It's for this reason that pseudo-gods are created even now so that humans might serve gods that they can tame and they can control rather than serving the one true God who rules over everything and calls us to submit to Him. Humanity does not like submitting. Humanity does not like repenting and turning away from things that make their flesh feel good. And that's exactly what the true God, the living God, the God who exists, calls for from every single last human being on planet Earth. Moses continued, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you so that you, O Israel, might be instructed, shaped, and admonished to obedience. <clears throat> says to Israel, You both heard his words and saw the awesome sights the Lord did all of this so that you might know what sort of God He is for you. The very God who chose you to be His people. And He has called you into a unique covenantal relationship to Himself. And this because, as we read in verse 37, because He loved your fathers. So in light of all of this, in light of the fact that the Lord has displayed His love for Israel... He has displayed his love for you. Because God has revealed that he is the only God, because he loves you and he has proven that love by great and mighty acts of power on your behalf, Moses then says in verse 40, Therefore, in light of the fact that God loved you, therefore you shall keep his commands and his statutes. Conform your life to his statutes. The Lord always gives us sight of his love and then in response to that love calls for a response. The Lord always proves his love and then calls for people to obey. And he doesn't call us to obey because it's good for him. He calls us to obey because it's good for us. 
For ancient Israel under the old covenant to keep the statutes that the Lord commanded them would issue in, going, everything going well with them, verse 40, and with their children after them, and prolonged the life in the land that the Lord their God is giving them. But for us, we see in Romans, the, the letter to the Romans, for the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, it is a clear outline of the love and the mercy, and the compassion, and the work that God has shown to you, his people. And it's only after, and if you look at Paul's letters, generally that's how they work. Here is what God has done to show you his love. And in the second half, or the the last bit of the letter, it'll be, therefore, this ought to be your response. Romans tends to be a little longer. Eleven chapters focus on the love of God in saving sinners who do not deserve it. And so after so clearly outlining the mighty hand and outstretched arm of the Lord in the salvation of sinners for all who call out to him in faith, it's then only in chapter 12 that the Apostle Paul begins to outline the appropriate response to the great love and mercy and compassion of the Lord. So I'll leave us in closing with just this section of Paul's magnificent letter. For those who know and trust in the Lord... For those who know that he is God and besides him there is no other. For those who know that his power and mighty arm have been worked for your salvation. For those of you who know the mercy, compassion, and love of the Lord. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, Therefore, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we thank you so much for the clear display both to your ancient people, Israel, and to us today that you are a God of mercy and compassion. We thank you that you are a God who shows us clear displays of your wonderful love and your grace. We thank you that you are the God who reaches down from heaven and saves a people for himself. What other God has ever done anything like that? What what other, anyone has ever done anything like that? There is no one. It is you. It is only you. It is always you. And we praise you and we honor you We reject all divided loyalties. We recognize that you are the Lord, and besides you there is no other. 
And as we appreciate your compassion and your love for us this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand the response that we must have to that love. The therefore. We can't do it on our own. We need your Spirit to help us. And so I pray that each one of us, by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, would seek with every fiber of our being not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, because you are good and you have shown us your love so clearly in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.